Hello there, welcome to Main Fight Club. I'm your host, Manny Galarza, and we are on to week two of Data White's Contender Series coming up this Tuesday, the 2nd of August with an 8 p.m. Eastern start time. I know, I know, week one was not the best start. I heard some people out there saying, I will never bet on this, this is booty and whatever else. I get it, I get it, it was not a good showing. But hold your horses, give it a chance. We've got nine weeks left. There's 10 weeks in total, five new bouts in the card. It's only five bouts. I look at it like a, an appetizer, a midweek appetizer before we jump into the real stuff this weekend. And this weekend's busy. PFL, of course you got UFC. So look, this is our midweek little appetizer, kind of like the NFL's, you know, NFL does Thursday Night Football. It's like that. It's Dana White Contender Series, midweek, young prospects. And I think we'll have a better showing. Dana White dropped the mic last week after the show. Was kind of not happy about the people going out there and not pushing the pace. I'm sure every single coach, every single person on this fight car coming up on Tuesday night has heard the message. I'm giving you a full breakdown here of each fight along with our picks. Not as much information about props because the props are not even available. We'll talk about the money line. We like a lot of dogs. Hint, hint, a lot of the dogs in this card will be alive and well. And quite frankly, when you have minus 200 spots, minus 240, where it's young fighters, I think you gotta take a close look at the dogs. We'll talk about those one at a time here. At the end of the show, we'll give you our full card synopsis, our summary of our picks, and we'll talk about a parlay or two. With all that said, guys, thank you for joining us. If you haven't done so already, please like and subscribe, and here we go with the first fight in the card. Next up, we have a welterweight bout at 170 pounds between Billy Goff, the American fighter from Groton, Connecticut, and Shimon Smatrisky, who goes by the assassin who hails from Holland, Israel. The Israeli fighter is 8-1 overall, 4-1 his last five fights, 21 years young in 11 months, so about to be 22, 6 foot 2 in height with a 74 inch reach, and he trains out of Team Packed Holland. As for Billy Goff, 7-2, 5-0 in his last five fights, so on a bit of a winning streak, 24 years old, only about two years younger, Two years older, I'm sorry. Both guys are in their very young 20s. He's 5'10", though, about four inches shorter than Shimon Smatrisky, with a 72-inch reach, giving up two inches in reach. That may play a factor, though, if you watch the way Willie Goff fights, he tends to squash the sandwich and bring it in close, likes to keep things in close. So I don't imagine it's going to be a big part of the issue here for him. Um, but at range, you imagine that Smatrisky will have the advantage, right? He will be able to tag him at a little bit from the distance. Nonetheless, Billy Goff is from Dexter MMA, and looking at the numbers on Tapology, Goff is the big favorite. This one surprises me. 78% of the votes coming in for Goff, only 22% for Smotherinsky, the Israeli fighter. This should be a pick'em. This really should be a pick'em. I, I mentioned this in other fights in this card. These are very young fighters, 21, 22, 23. A lot of improvements are being made. A lot of mental, physical growth is, is undergoing at that age. These should be pick'ems. There's a lot of question marks, blind spots, and so when you see plus 200, anything plus 200 range on a Dana White Contender Series card, you got to take a double take. Now, at first glance, when you look here at Simone Smotherinsky, if you're the casual fan, you just do that whole profile picture thing. He looks thin. He looks young. He looks fragile. I would implore you, watch him fight. He is not like that. He is a very good fighter. He's got a lot of talent. We don't have many Israeli fighters on the roster. I believe Natan Levy comes to mind as... Maybe the only other male fighter in the UFC that's from Israel. And not to play politics or, you know, go down the rabbit hole of chasing conspiracy theories, but, you know, the UFC wants to have representation from all corners of the globe. And if you want to have representation from one group, that's a unique group, wealthy group, educated group, that would be Jewish people. So in the past, for example, when Natan Levy has fought, there's been clamors from like Hollywood and top-notch people in, people in positions of power that happen to be 
Jewish who are like, listen, we want to be able to root for one of our own. It's not racist. It's not prejudice. It's no, no isms here. It's just, uh, if anything, it's, it's nationalist, right? You're, you're proud of your people. So for Shimon Smotherisky, second time coming through one Dana White Contender Series, I get the motive for the UFC. They want this guy to make the roster. They'd like to have a few more Israeli Jews on the roster. There's nothing wrong with that. Now look at the background of these two fighters. Let's talk first about Billy Goff, who's from Connecticut. He went 4-2 and two as an amateur. He went pro 2019. He fought in Bellator and Cage Titans prior to this opportunity. You'd like to see that. When guys come from promotions that are like completely unknown or from some regional promotion somewhere where it's just very unknown. It's very hard to gauge. At least we know this guy has notched wins in Bellator and Cage Titans, which are two good promotions. Now, he fought Sean Lally, 2021, just last year, won the fight by decision. He dominated the fight with forward pressure. He did that thing we talked about with squashing space, coming forward. Oh my God, I have a fly in here. I apologize. Where this fly come from? In any case, he squashes distance, gets in his opponent's face, dominates the entire fight. Now, keep in mind though, Sean Lally, is one and four in his last five fights. Not necessarily the most talented of opponents. And he's been finished four times in six losses. That's Lally. Okay, so it wasn't like a fight where he was fighting a guy who was very durable, had a good record. And though he whoops his ass for a good amount of the fight, remember this guy has lost four fights by a finish out of his six losses. He was unable to finish Lally. So my question is, how good is he? You, know, you should be able to finish a guy like that. You know, is Shimon Smotrinsky better than Sean Lally? See, this is the question I start to ask myself. He couldn't finish Sean Lally. He beat him, yes. But I think Shimon Shmitsky is much better than Sean Lally. And so from that standpoint, we have ourselves at least, you can argue, a potential decision if you're using MMA math, if not just a tougher overall fight, right? He also fought Marty Navis, 2021, round one TKO. Navis was undefeated at the time at 5-0. He's now currently 5-2. He takes down Navis early. That's Billy Goff I'm talking about. Gets control time. Gets the TKO finish. It was a bit of a weird stoppage in that the referee came in maybe a little premature. Yet the fighter seemed to be okay. Nonetheless, he gets the win there. A lot of questionable people on the tapology. But those are two I looked at. Those two film links are down below if you want to watch those actual films yourself. Now, what's to like about Billy Goff? He's coming into this fight on a five-fight winning streak. You like that. Winning is a habit. He doesn't mind standing in the phone booth and trading. You love betting on fighters that when the shit hits the fan, they're going to stand and trade. He's got that in his DNA. He likes to back his opponent up against the fence. He's got that forward pressure mindset. I mean, another box you want to check. When you're betting on a fighter, you don't want to have a person who's backing up, fighting off their back foot, doesn't have the instinct to fight, uh, has, has lulls in their game, will go minutes on end without throwing a punch, all the things you don't want. That's not Billy Goff. Billy who? Billy Goff over here will forward pressure, get in your face, take a few to give a few. That's his style. I like it. A very good finish rate. Now, we always put an asterisk by these finishing marks because they're new fighters. They're, they're fighting guys that are very unproven records of people that are like 1-0, 0-1, you know, type of thing. Nonetheless, of seven wins, he's got five finishes and all of them by TKO, which tells us he's more of a TKO finisher, not so much of a submission guy. He has good wrestling and he can do damage in top control. Now, that's not like... An amazing observation. If you're in top control, you can probably do some damage. But some guys will do top control and do like the huggy huggy top control, look for submissions. Some guys will do top control, posture up, and lay down the lumber. That's his style. He will posture up, hammer strikes, do some damage, and has good takedowns, like double leg takedowns. You can see there's a wrestling foundation there with him. Now, what are my concerns for Mr. Goff? Well, 
I'm not sure if he's the brother of Jared Goff. That, that's the question I ask myself. Is he the brother of Jared Goff? I don't think so. They look nothing alike, and he's much shorter than Jared Goff. But Jared Goff is on a losing football team, right? The Detroit, Detroit Lions. Hopefully he doesn't rub off here on our buddy Goff. <laughs> okay, hopefully he doesn't take any of that bad mojo. Uh, but my serious concerns about him are he's fought very low-level competition. That's the question with every single person we're going to look at. Um, it's hard to gauge. There's some blind spots here. Now, also, there's a question of durability. He's been finished once as a pro. Okay, whatever. But got finished twice as an amateur, too. And we're not talking about a lot of fights, right? We're only talking about a handful of total fights. What's Billy Goff's total record? He is 7-2. and two. Nine total fights as a pro. So in that period of time with nine total fights, got finished one time and also got finished twice as an amateur. I'm just putting it out there. Maybe there's some durability issues. Maybe not. He'll give up two inches in reach in this fight. And the future's in height. The height, eh, not such a big deal. But the two inches in reach, that could play a factor. His boxing guard is very penetrable. Here's what I mean by that. His hands tend to be here. They're not low. They're not irresponsible. They're here. If you've got a nice quick jab like a Kevin Holland or something like that, you're going to snap that jab right through the middle of that guard. And remember, Shimon has a two-inch reach advantage and a pretty good jab. So I don't love the guard. You can see him over the course of a fight, like taking some damage in the face and his hands are like here, but they're never really fully blocking the shot. It's not a tight guard, limited head movement. And it's like his head's like looking right through that, almost like a like an eyepiece. <laughs> you can see the target, right? Um, and he tends to expose himself to nasty counters. Okay, so for example, what I mean by this, he will stand and trade. We talked about it earlier. We like that about him. In the process of trading, it's like, motion picture movie mode it's just swinging from the hips heads wide open hairs flopping around and it's just a matter of one punch i love the rambo rocky mentality but he leaves himself wide open for for a tough counter so let's talk about shimon smatriski the israeli fighter no amateur record he went pro 2016 so been a pro for about six years he fought in bellator and rcc prior to, to, to this opportunity with Dana white contender series and he also fought last year on Dana Wagon Series. So the guy's got some good experience, like his opponent, not just coming in here out of a regional scene. They have Bellator experience under the belt. Which, by the way, I have to mention, I, I like Bellator. I think Bellator, for most people's standards, would be the second promotion right under the UFC, right? But my gosh, they put on a lot of low-level fights that I, I, I kind of forget they even happened. So just I'm, it's not a bad thing, but yeah, they put on some low-level fights sometimes. When you see Bellator on Fighters Tapology, I'm starting to think it doesn't mean as much as it used to. Nonetheless, he did have a fight in Bellator and got the win there. He fought on Dana White Contenders last year. He lost by submission in round one to Mike Mallett. Now, that wasn't his last fight. He did fight a fight after that, picked up a win, not coming back. But that fight showed you a handful of things. One, he maybe wasn't ready. I wasn't ready. He was like, what, 21 at that time? Turning 22 now? Yeah. Very young fighter. 35 seconds, right? It's a quick finish. It was like a 35 second finish by submission, nonetheless. Now, Mike Milet, very cerebral fighter, very smart. We now know more about him. Has picked up a win in the UFC since this time. Very inspiring guy. Is a coach. You can see that, again, that he's a thinker in the octagon. He's smart. It's a simple mistake by Shimon Smatryski. He's kind of in an off balance position, tries to maybe go for some kind of a corral takedown. And you see. The smarts, the wisdom, the technique of Mike Mallett, who just swoops up a guillotine. Um, it was almost just a bit of bad luck. You can't say it's bad luck against a good fighter like Mike Mallett, who's trained that and knows what he's doing. 
But it was a simple mistake by a 21-year-old young fighter, a mistake that hopefully he won't make again, and he gets submitted. He tries to fight it for a second. But that fight also shows you that when these guys come in here with, I think it was 8-0 and at the time or 7-0 and at the time, a decent-looking prospect, athletic, young, once they go up against a competition of a person that's UFC caliber, and we know that Mike Mallett is UFC caliber, he's got to win down the UFC, 1-0 in the UFC, um, yeah, you can't make those mistakes anymore. If you make a little mistake, they're going to submit you, are going to finish you. And so I think that that also highlighted the fact that Shimon Smadriski, though he's a prospect, still may very well may not be ready for this. And at this age, he could lose on Dana White Contender Series again and come on back, and he's so young. He's so young. So that wasn't the last fight. That was two fights ago. But that was a fight on the biggest stage and probably his toughest opponent. And again, to drive home the point, drive home the point, excuse me, the toughest opponent, he got finished right away. We also watched him fight against Sergei Yaskovets, 2020 decision, split decision win. A weird fight on paper because on paper, you're looking at it and saying, oh, he barely won. He clearly won the fight, in my opinion. He, sp- he put on his wrestling skills in that fight. And that's a side of his game that you, you can't, take from the pitcher. You don't see it from the pitcher. Those stats aren't really readily available. But he's a very good wrestler. He's long and lean, so that also kind of is a bit of a mind fuck. You're like, wait, he's not built like a wrestler. He doesn't have any cauliflower here. He can wrestle. In that fight against Sergey, he puts the wrestling clinic on. Clinic on. He wins round one and round three because of the wrestling. He's very dominant. Um, hold on a second here. Sorry. Stop it. No. My dog's back here trying to chime in on the breakdown. Um, no, Ace. I don't need your feedback, buddy. All right, so yeah, we watched Sergey and him fight. 2020 split decision win. Pretty good fight overall, a little bit boring. He wins the fight because of the wrestling. Now, what's to like about Shimon Smitriski and the way he fights? He'll have a two-inch reach advantage in this matchup. That's going to matter. He's also very good with the body locks. So here's a guy, again, he's very long, lean, long arms. When he gets the body lock in, he's going to scrape you down and take you down. He's going to surprise some people with the takedown ability. Again, the wrestling, he's very good. He's like sneaky good at it. He's good at it. Just doesn't look like he's good at it. Pretty good finish rate. Five finishes in nine total fights. So about almost 50% of the time, he's knocking someone out or finishing them. But again, here's the asterisk. Who are these people? Who are these people? Right? We don't know. Now, what are my concerns for Shimon Smatriski? There are two concerns. One, he did this before. He was here last year and he lost. 35 seconds, round one. That's in the back of your mind. Like, what if I come in here and lay a doo-doo again? And then the same question I have for the other fighter, Billy Goff. Who are they fighting? What's the level of talent? We watched Goff versus Lally, 2021. Goff versus Navis, 2021. Smatrisky versus Jaskovic. And Smatrisky versus Mallet. If you want to watch any one of those four fights, as part of our free video library. Just look down below here on YouTube. On YouTube, you can't do it if you're listening on the podcast. But if you're here on YouTube, go down in the description. You're going to see those four links available as part of our free video library. Just my final few thoughts here. My last few thoughts on these two fighters comes to experience, I'm going to give them both about the same rating. You can argue that Shimon has had, he's doing this a second time, maybe has more experience. But, you know, looking at the quality of fighters, these guys have both fought very level people. It's just like, if you're going to give an edge, they're an experience, maybe to Shimon, but really it's about the same. Cardio-wise, both have pretty high motors. You notice that on film. These guys don't, I mean, they fatigue like everyone else, but they tend to keep going forward high activity. When it comes to finishing ability, that's a toss-up. You know, you, you could look at the numbers and say, oh, this guy had, who are they fighting? Who are they finishing? For the striking, I mean, I think Shimon Smatryski is the more technical striker. That's what it looks like on film. Maybe Billy Goff has more volume, will get in your face more, do the tough guy thing, probably the better dirty boxer. But when it comes to fluidity, 
Shimon seems to be more technical. So there's positive negatives on both sides for striking. And lastly, the grappling department. Here's where I think Shimon could do some work. Billy Goff can get takedowns too. He's also a pretty good wrestler. He will posture up. He'll do some damage. But Shimon is a little bit trickier. He's got this length and this leverage. Really kind of difficult to uh, control. No props are available yet, but I will look at the prop of the fight going to decision. I think these guys are very evenly matched. And then I will look at possibly Billy Goff to get a TKO. I think if he were to finish Shimon, it would be by rocking him somehow. The pressure coming forward. But the bet to be made here is Shimon Smotriski straight up on the money line at plus 240. I know there's like a lot of dogs in this card I'm going after, but at minus 200, I mean, you could argue putting a bunch of the favorites on this card on a parlay. We'll probably do that on the side because we're degens. But the bet here is plus 240. Shimon Smotriski. That's your breakdown, guys. That's our pick. Good luck with this fight. Next up, we have the lone heavyweight fight in the card. At 265 pounds, we've got Waldo Cortez Ocasta from the Dominican Republic versus Danilo Suzart. I think they pronounce it like Suzarte, almost like with a T-E at the end. In any case, Danilo Suzart goes by Dan. That's his moniker, Dan. Maybe it got confused with like, that's his nickname. People call him Dan for short. Nonetheless, Danilo is 9-1 overall. He hails from Brazil, 4-1 his last five fights. Quite a big dog here, actually the biggest dog on this card. At plus 280, that in itself, of course, has got my ears up, got my feelers up. A big dog on a fight where it's both guys or limited experience. So let's pay attention to this. I do think he's got a fighting chance. I'm going to try to convince you of the potential dog or pass pick here. So right off the gates, I'm going to tell you I like Suzart. I like him to win here. He reminds me a lot of Carlos Felipe. If you know Carlos Felipe from the UFC roster, very athletic but shorter heavyweight. And they're the same size, actually. So Danilo Suzart is six foot. Carlos Felipe is six foot, and we don't have a reach number here on Danilo Suzart. So I did some research, did some comparison. He is like almost identical body type to Carlos Felipe, like rounder, you know, in the midsection, dad bod that type of thing going on. And if you look up the reach on Carlos Felipe, it's 65 inches. And they're very similar. Again, body type is similar. If you look at the arm length of Danilo Suzart on film, his arms don't look incredibly long for his body type. So I'm going to imagine his reach is about... 65 inches and again if you want to see him fight it'll remind you uh, very much so of how carlos felipe fights um, going back to these two fighters here so basic information what do we've got here so 31 years old for suzart he's about one year older six foot height four inches shorter than acosta and again an estimated 65 i'm sorry 75 inch reach so roughly about a five inch reach disadvantage um actually now that i'm looking at it it says 80 inch reach here for acosta wow that would mean that if yeah, I mean, if that's correct, <laughs> that means he's going to have quite a bit of a reach here advantage over Suzart. We'll see how that plays out. Nonetheless, Suzart trains out of Life MMA. And as for Waldo Cortez, it's not listed on Tapology, but one of his prior fights, one of his most recent fights, says that he trains out of the Ultimate Combat Fitness Center, which is believed in Arizona. I think I've heard that gym before, so he's probably not alone there in terms of, you know, competitive, decent mixed martial artists. Anyway, some basic information on these two fighters, looking at Waldo Cortez Acosta. First, he's from DR. He was born in Dominican Republic, was playing baseball, which is like playing soccer, I guess, if he grew up in Brazil. When it comes to baseball, Dominican Republic is very well known for producing a lot of top-notch baseball players, even guys like in the Major League Baseball system. Nonetheless, playing baseball, he's a pitcher, hurts his elbow, does some mixed martial arts training as part of his rehabilitation, and just never goes back to baseball. Falls in love with mixed martial arts. After some of his fights, you might see him do like a baseball pitching 
you know, kind of pose or, or move, and that's where that comes from. He used to be a pitcher. He went six and four in pro boxing. If you look up on certain websites, it says he's four no in pro boxing. But if you go on Tapology, you'll see some losses. He did take two KO losses in his last two boxing matches. Anyway, so the boxing career is like, I don't know, it's kind of hard to, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it, but he was an average boxer. He fights out of a right-handed boxing stance, which makes sense. He was a boxer, and he's also right-handed. His last fight was against Thomas Peterson. That was earlier this year. He got a round three TKO win, and that was for the LFA title. Pretty important fight for him. He did great in front of a big crowd. He was, I don't know that he was the underdog. He was the challenger. I'll tell you that. He's the challenger because Thomas Peterson was the one who held the, the championship belt. In round one, you see one of the things about Cortez Acosta's game. He's very slow and plodding. He will take his time. He's in it to win the marathon. He's not there to win the sprint. He takes his time. So early on, there's some nervous moments. I mean, at one point, the fight almost looked like it was going to get stopped in round one. He gets a bit overwhelmed. Thomas Peterson is blowing his wide, throwing a lot of punches, has him up against the fence, has him on the ground. That's one thing about Acosta that I have to point out right now. His takedown defense is not very good. But these guys are both very very bad in that area. Now, neither guy is much of a wrestler. But if either one of these guys decided to get a takedown, they would get it with ease. In that fight against Thomas Peterson, last fight for Cortez, you see that he gets taken down easily. He does get back up. But when Peterson wanted to take him down, it wasn't a hard thing for him. And I think he took him down in every single round of that fight. Nonetheless, gets taken down in round one. I believe loses round one. At the end of round one, he has a moment or two, lets his hands go. But you see that slow, taking your time, kind of like, I'm trying to think of which kind of fighters do this. But nonetheless, he's one of those fighters, okay? We get into round two, he turns the tide a bit, starts letting his hands go, does a better job managing distance. This guy, Thomas Peterson, who he was fighting, was 5-0 at the time and the current LFA champion at the time. Now, a little deeper look there, Thomas Peterson, he is okay. I'm not sure he's ever going to become a UFC-level fighter. I'm not sure that's in his future, but he's a durable, big, tough guy. Um, and he gave a good account of himself in that fight until he gets knocked out in round three. Now, it was a five-round fight, mind you. So you got to give credit to Acosta for finishing the fight early. Or not early, but finishing the fight at some point. Nonetheless, you know, you see the best versions of Acosta. You see that he's got good cardio. You see his opponent was starting to slow down. He was starting to speed up, making good decisions, good, good surviving tactics. But nothing that wowed you. Like, okay, he hurts the guy at the end, jumps on top of him, you know, gets a few ground and pound finishes, they stop the fight. But it was nothing that really I took away was like, wow, that's amazing. He's going to go into the UFC. He's going to win this fight, for example, in flying colors. A prior fight to talk about, Mo DeReese. When I first saw the name, I thought about Mo. What's the guy's name who was on the Ultimate Fighter show? I can't remember his name. But uh, the other guy who was on the UFC Ultimate Fighter show, he was on the PFL recently and got his butt knocked out. Excuse me. Nonetheless, Mo Deris, the other Mo Deris, former college football player. That fight was last year. So Waldo, Cortez, and Acosta and him fight. It goes to decision. When you're watching the fight, you're like, how does this go to decision? There were so many times when you thought Acosta was about to finish it, and he did just about enough, and the referee was about to step in, and then the referee backed off. A lot of times where he had Deris down, like against the cage, just lambing hammer strikes, beating him up. Deris is 9-5 and five overall. He's not the worst heavyweight, but the dude is two and five in his last seven fights. And over that period of time, over that period of time, those five losses that Doris had, he was finished in four of those five losses. The one fight he wasn't finished, when he fought our boy here, Waldo Cortez Acosta. I mean, that right there is a red flag. Does Acosta lack finishing power? Looking back at Tapology, he does have finishes. He does have some decisions. And the same goes for his opponent in this matchup, for Suzart. 
I suspect this fight has a high likelihood of actually going to decision, which will not bode well for Mr. Dana White post-show. But that's my first hint of the fight probably going over. If you got the over props, I would consider it. I think these guys have some finishing power. And they throw with some power. Of course, they're heavyweights. They're big guys. But the numbers don't lie. And when you look at that specific matchup right there with Mo DeReese versus Acosta, and he is about to finish it many times, but he doesn't get the job done. So just something to highlight there. Um, Acosta did beat his ass, though, for the entire fight. And you see, again, the benefit of good cardio. Acosta has done interviews and hailed his cardio and how good it is and how he uses it as a weapon. Um, if you have good cardio as a heavyweight, I'll tell you what, that's – that's definitely something you could weaponize. No question about it. Now, what's to like about our man Waldo Cortez Ocasta? Waldo. Where's Waldo? His takedown defense, it's not great. We talked about that. But his stand-up offense is very good. I guess you can't refer to stand-up as defense, so I'm saying it as offense. But his ability to get up, all right? So you do like that. You know, m Many of the times, the guys who can't get defend takedowns also can't get up. They're not working that enough in training. He does get back up. He punches with a lot of power, tons of power. Late in the fight, shows that good cardio. So late in the fight, sometimes guys tend to slip off, get a little tired. The power in the hands goes down. Because of the way he manages cardio, I've seen him on film. He throws with a lot of power late in fights. It's controlled power. His technique is pretty good. Heavyweights tend to do the whole looping outside thing. He does some of that as well. But his technique is actually pretty good. So he does, his power does go late into the fight. He tells himself as well as having good cardio. We talked about it. And if you look at him on film, that does check out. Now, he has his moments. He's not the highest, he's not the best like cardio guy in the weight division, heavyweight division, but he does do a good job of managing his cardio, managing his cardio. He does a good job of like not overdoing it at times, right? Now, what are my concerns for Mr. Ocasta? What does he not do well? He can go through long periods of time, long stretches where he's just low volume. One strike here, little jab there, and you're asking yourself, do you want to fight? And if you're betting on him, you're like, no, why are you giving up this part of the round? It's a three-round fight. It's not a five-round fight. He has fought five-round fights recently. It's important in these three-round fights. Yes, you can drop a round. But just from the mental standpoint, wouldn't it be nice to pocket round one? And what does that take? A little sense of urgency. Yes, using your head. Maybe you get up in the round and you just manage yourself, manage your cardio. But you come out there for minutes on end in front of cranky Dana White, who's already looking to pop off if somebody doesn't come out there hungry. And if he does that, which he's done before, that can just be that can backfire in so many ways. One on the scorecards if it goes to decision. And then two, let's say he picks up the win. Let's say he does this early on, manages distance, and he's the fresher fighter later, but he's not finishing the fight. You know, I just wonder about that part of his game plan. And if you're betting on him or if you've watched him before, I think you're gonna know what I'm talking about. So he also has ter terrible takedown defense. We just talked about this earlier. And that goes for both fighters. Both fighters have terrible takedown defense. It just doesn't make sense. I don't understand why guys don't train that more. But if you look at them on film, it's very easy to take them down. And last but not least, he lacks a sense of urgency. I know that's being redundant. I said before, he goes through long stretches of not striking. But when I talk about that, that's like part of his technique, managing cardio technique. Within that, tied in a little bit deeper, more detail, is the layer of a lack of a sense of urgency. Let's say it is a close round three. Let's say it's 30 seconds left. I mean, heck, there was a fight the other day. The fight, yes, the heavyweight fight, Hayes, Mays, whatever his name is, who lost to the Humdi guy. And a lot of people bet on Mays. Heck, I bet on Mays. He crushed a bunch of my parlays. And Mays simply lacked that sense of urgency. That gene is not there. 
that gene is cut out of his DNA. He had he had Humdi hurt in round two and didn't pressure him. The guy's like blinking and his eye and he, he can't finish it. And then his corner's like screaming at him. And, and in round three, like you have this chance. There's 35 seconds, 45 seconds. He did like the Nate Diaz thing of like, oh, I'm just going to chill out here. Like you're going to lose the fight. I fear that with Waldo, Mr. Waldo Cortez, Ocasta, three names, I think he lacks that gene. He lacks urgency. All right, let's talk about the Brazilian Danilo Suzart. Mr. Suzart or Suzarte, depending upon you and how you would pronounce it. He hails from Brazil, no amateur record. He went pro in 2018. He's fought in Wolf Fight. Never heard of that before. That's an actual promotion name, Wolf Fight. Ari's FC, Ari's is decent, and Dubai Fight 1. He's a shorter heavyweight. We talked about him earlier that he reminds me a lot of Carlos Felipe. If you know who that fighter is, if you don't look him up on Tapology, they're both six feet. Shorter on the heavyweight side, tend to be rounder. But round is in. You know, nothing wrong. Have a little bit of more meat on the edges. But what he does have in common with Carlos is not just the look, their fighting style. These are like athletic guys. Those are the people that are heavier. They'll still like do a backflip off of something. Or, you know, those people that just, you know, they're kind of sneaky, athletic, and flexible and stuff. That's how he is. He's quick twitch, good movement, athletic, a lot like Carlos Felipe. Now, his last opponent was Benjamin Sihik. That was this year. He won by majority decision. That tapology reference, that does not do it justice. He won that fight. He won it clearly. The judge who gave it a draw was smoking crack that night. I was very curious to watch the fight. By around three-ish, I was then getting very bored of watching the fight because it was the same thing every single round. It was five full rounds. Not sure how it went five full rounds because several times it looked as if Danilo had this guy done and just didn't get it done. Um, now, there was a, a point or two early in the fight, like round one, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, where Danilo was face down on the ground with this big, massive ass, like Tom Sawyer, Paul Bunyan, white guy on, on his back. Because if you know what Benjamin Seahek is built like, he's a big, natural heavyweight. Paul Bunyan guy is on Danilo's back, landing hammer fits, and noticeably, the referee is like other side of the octagon, like not even interested in thinking about stopping it. I'm like, all right, that's good because it looks like it's it's starting to get like 10, 15, 20 shots from Paul Bunyan to the side back of the head of Danilo. And Danilo takes it, eventually squirms his way back to his feet because I believe um, Sika tries to chase like a few arm bars or submissions and loses position. And he gets back to his feet and survives. And that happens a few times throughout the fight where he's down, not looking good, getting beat up a little bit and pops back to his feet. But no question has the big moments. I mean, he basically knocks down this guy once or twice. Um, when I say basically, he hits him a few times off balance, and then Benjamin Siak would like go for a takedown kind of and like fall to the ground, and then be like, come on, come down here with me. And to the defense of Danilo, I'd say one thing. He may not have finished Siak, but he used good fighter IQ. He knew to stay off the ground with this guy when he could, to not, to not engage. He always disengaged if he could, got back to his feet, and on the feet was quicker. He caught him many times. He does have a bit of the Carlos Felipe syndrome, though. You see, Carlos Felipe is athletic. We talked about it. But he lacks KO power, and so does our boy here, Danilo Suzart. He throws with such a looping technique. It's never straight on the pipe. If it hits, it hits. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And I just think it lacks the technique to actually snap somebody's head back and, and get a, a finish on a consistent basis. That's just my observation. One of the things I had to ask myself was, imagining this fight that he fought against Benjamin Sihik. Now, is Benjamin Sihik 
similar to, better, or worse than Waldo Cortez Acosta. And I'm going to say again, I think Waldo Cortez Acosta is going to be a bump up. So this is going to be a tougher fight for our boy Danilo Souza. And just one more thing about that fight. He was taken down and controlled in several rounds. Back to Cortez Acosta. He does a better job getting back up. So if I had to compare them from a grappling perspective, they both have bad takedown defense. But at least when it comes to Acosta, he gets back up. In the fight, last fight there with Benjamin Sieg versus our boy here, Danilo Suzart. Suzart did a terrible job of getting up at times. He was able to get out eventually, but spent a lot of time on the ground. And as for the scorecards again, I thought he clearly won. I believe one judge had it like 40, 48, 46, or 49, 40, something like that. And then some bonehead judge had it even. Just wacky. So what's to like about Danilo Suarez? So, I almost called him Suarez. Suzart, how does he fight? What's to like about him? The round body type, don't let it get it twisted. He is very athletic. He's got very good movement. He's not a standing target. Good footwork. He's light in his feet. And you know what? For a guy who doesn't look like he's in amazing shape, he actually has good cardio. He's light in his feet for all three rounds. He will find his way back to the feet if you take him down. But I don't imagine this fight's on the ground at all. Both these guys like to stand and bang. He's also displayed a solid chin and never been finished before. And for the size disadvantage that he has, which he'll have in this matchup, four inches in height and about five to six, I don't know, seven, we'll see what the reach is like. He makes up for it with quickness. He sets up his strikes with quickness and good footwork. So you have the reach disadvantage, yeah, but the dipping and moving is how he's able to close distance and then obviously disengage and get away from the, the danger. Now, what are my concerns for Suzart? The poor takedown defense, of course, which we mentioned before, and on top of that, compounds it with not being able to get back up very quickly. I'm going to say it again. If Acosta, either guy came in here with some kind of a wrestling game plan, not the entire fight, but just some part of the fight, maybe a, a late round takedown in a close round. It could be a path to them at least securing a round, maybe even securing a close decision. Though a decision is not what they should be aiming for. It's the NOI contender series, right? He throws haymakers at times. A lot of these heavyweights do. But for Suzart, I mean, it's it's very off-balance haymakers. Put it that way. It's like looping. It's His arm is straight. It's all the way out here coming around. It's almost going to become a slap. It's, not even, it's never even like a bent loop. It's not like a hook. It's like way out here like a kite. That's how he throws his punches. When it lands, it's kind of exciting. It leaves him off balance. He doesn't even see what he's hitting. <laughs> it's it's not great technique. And I tell you what, again, it reminds me so much of the way Carlos Felipe fights. That's the way Felipe throws his, his haymakers. He's always the shorter fighter. That's not a benefit. He makes up for it, yes, but at the end of the day, he's giving up reach. If he fights a good jabber, a good striker, someone who's light in the feet as well, who's bigger and taller, it's just, just about... You know, nature. He's the smaller guy. He's going to get tagged at the distance. We watched Ocasta versus Peterson, 2022. We watched Ocasta versus Doris from last year. Suzart versus Siak from this year. And Suzart in an open workout that was in preparation for his Siak fight earlier this year. It's a link down below. And that's just like an open workout, him just moving around boxing. And I, I want to comment on that. In that open workout, he does just some, you know, whatever. Boxing with the pads, nothing amazing. He doesn't wow you. But remember, he is a heavyweight, so you have to put that in context. At first glance, I'm like, this guy's kind of slow. He doesn't look very athletic. Put that workout aside. Go watch him fight in a real fight. The guy's, you know, he's about that. He can fight. He's he's uh, he's pretty exciting. He's got some personality. He'll get the crowd going at times, though that won't help in the the cage of the Dana White Contender Series. Well, there'll be some people there, but you know what I mean. He's, he's a showman a bit. Um, he gets people going. I think that uh, this fight's going to be close. At plus 280, I'm definitely taking a shot at Danilo Suzart here. If I haven't convinced you enough that it's a fight where you have a lot of holes on both sides, I don't know what else I could have convinced you of. 
if you still feel confident in minus 340 to lay that wood on Ocosta, you must know something I don't know. He is only 6-0. and oh. I mean, keep this in mind. I don't believe anyone on this Dana White contender series should be money lined this way. But something's out there. The money's coming in. People like him. I think this fight goes the distance. I'm calling that. If that prop opens up, it's going to be a plus money prop. I might sprinkle that one and just maybe put a little sprinkle also on Suzart. When I say sprinkle, like a $25 bet on Danilo Suzart. Maybe something like that. Just to have some action on it. Just to say I won and the dog hit. But there's no way I'm putting money on Ocosta. I'm not parlaying him. I think he could win the fight. I think he's got some talent. I love the patience and everything else. This also could go to decision. An agrees to decision at that point, it's up in the air. Depends on how the judges see it. If it goes to decision, neither guy gets a contract unless it's some kind of like a, a war and there's blood and it's like really dramatic. But that's not really how these guys fight. I question the punching power in both guys. Nonetheless, that's the breakdown, guys. I think these guys are very similar when it comes to experience, cardio, finishing ability, their striking. They pretty much size up everywhere. It'll come down to a small moment or two in the fight. I'm going to give the dog here a shot, Danilo Suzart. Good luck with this fight, guys. Up next, we have a featherweight bout at 145 pounds between two American fighters, Francis Marshall, who hails from New Jersey, and Connor Matthews, who goes by the controller, who hails from Brockton, Massachusetts, now based out of, I think, Boston, Massachusetts, where he trains out of Lauzon Mixed Martial Arts. Both guys are 5-0, so we have two undefeated young prospects who haven't really been tested. This will be a good matchup to see where they're at in their careers. For Connor Matthews, he's a minus 115 in the money line, so the money line's got him both as a pick -em. 30 years old, 5'8 in height with a 71-inch reach, and again, he trains out of Lauzon Mixed Martial Arts, which is a very good gym up there in the Northeast in Boston. As for Francis, He's minus 105, minus 115. Again, a pick and price. He's five foot nine, one inch taller. We don't have a reach on him, but if you've watched him fight or watch his film, I'd say his arms are maybe comparable to his size, but maybe a little bit shorter than Connor because um, it's just the way he's built. His arms seem to be a little stockier. He trains out of Pellegrino Makes Martial Arts. Now, as for the votes on Tapology, Marshall is the favorite at 77% of the votes. We have 23% of the votes coming in for Matthews. That's kind of funny. I didn't look at this until right now at the time of the recording, but I agree with the public vote. I do like Marshall. Now, he is from New Jersey, closer to home. Maybe I'm just being a homer. No, I do like Marshall. Both guys are very evenly matched. They do a lot of the same things very well. They're both excellent on the ground. They like to grapple. Submission wins in their resume. Let's talk here first about Mr. Francis Marshall first. So I mentioned before, he's from New Jersey. He's 5-0 as an amateur. He went pro 2019. He's only been a pro for about three years. He fights in a traditional right-handed stance. Let's talk about prior opponents. Now, Mike Taylor, 2021, he had a round one rear naked choke win. Taylor is 4-3 and three overall, but he did have a 15-3 and three amateur record. So, you know, if you watch the fight, Taylor doesn't look amazing. But he's got some striking ability. He's very long, very long fighter. And so he had a decent account of himself. Ends up being a quick fight, though. Marshall takes him to the ground, gets position control, gets the rear naked choke win, gets Taylor out of there pretty quickly. So from a, from a testing standpoint, not much of a test. And Taylor at 4-3, and three, not turning out to be an amazing pro, but it wasn't a complete can. Taylor's an okay fighter. Now, he also fought Ray Trujillo, or Trujillo, depending on how you want to pronounce that. 2021 decision win, so just about a year ago. Now, Ray's got a 24-34 and 34 record. At first glance, you're like, holy shit, this guy's definitely a gatekeeper, a journeyman. And he is. But he does have a win over Jamal Emmers. And Jamal Emmers, is he still in the UFC? I'm not sure. But his last fight was in the UFC last year against Pat Sabatini. So Jamal Emmers, UFC-level fighter, was one of the people that Ray Trujillo one against that fight ends up going to a decision where you have Rachel Drew losing to Francis Marshall I look at that fight as a very solid win Rachel Drew beat a guy who's currently in the UFC 
So that right there is an outliner for me. I think that's a moment in the breakdown here where we can see at least Francis Marshall has the edge possibly on strength of schedule just because of that win. Granted, Rachel is over the hill, 24-34, yet, but still. In this matchup, we're trying to pick at straws to try to find any kind of difference between the two fighters. Now, what's the like about Francis Marshall? Very good ground attack. Excellent BJJ skills. He sets up his shots very well, and he uses good wrestling technique to finish takedowns. A very high finish rate. Four of his five wins are via finish, and all four of those finishes were rear naked choke. So he likes the rear naked choke position. Now, what's my concerns for Francis Marshall? The same concern I'm going to mention here for Connor Matthews. It's all about strength of schedule, who they have fought against. The Ray Trujillo fight is maybe the one opponent I could say I could compare a little bit and measure a little bit, but he didn't finish him. It did go to decision. So again, there's a lot of unknowns here, a lot of blind spots. That'd be a recurring theme in this breakdown. There's just certain things we can't, we can't figure out. Now, as for Connor Matthews, also from the Northeast, from Boston, Massachusetts, four and two amateur record. He went pro 2019. He fought in CES and Cage Titans prior to this opportunity. His last few opponents. Now, this fight <laughs> topology, I'm going to try to go through it pretty quickly here, but it caught my attention because, you know, every now and then you do these breakdowns, you come across names on topology, not the names of the person you're breaking down. It's who they fought. Because we're talking about like UFC, Dana Mike Tennis Series, whatever, PFL, Bellator. Most of these fighters are, are decent fighters. They wouldn't be at this level, right? But in their topology, you'll see hidden are some names. We've talked about padding records recently. Um, yeah, Connor Matthews and his team have been working diligently to make sure they give him the most hand-fed, cooked, pretty much dead opponent possible. So his last fight, Connor Matthews fought earlier this year. He had a rear round one, rear naked choke win in 48 seconds against Josh Hardy. And you're like, oh, okay, that's impressive. Is it? Is it really impressive? So Josh Hardy is one in four. Eh, okay, whatever. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? He's one in four as a pro, right? Well, he's been finished in all four of his pro losses. And here's how, in order from the most recent going on backwards. His last fight, 41 second rear naked choke loss. Yeah. The fight before that, 48 second rear round one rear naked choke loss. The fight before that, 41 second knockout loss in round one. And the fight before that, he went a whopping one minute and 59 seconds in round one before he got knocked out. So three of his last four losses, once that 40-second mark hits in round one, it's like tick, 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 boom. How about this, though? Go back to his amateur days. Let's talk about his last his last four amateur bouts before this guy, Mr. Hardy, went pro. They went like this. Last bout as an amateur. Round one, 10-second knockout loss. <laughs> round one, 59-second submission loss. Round one, 33-second knockout loss. And then around one, he went two and a half minutes before he got submitted. I don't know why you would go pro after those are your last four amateur bouts, but nonetheless, here he is as a pro. And that is like the last opponent that Mr. Matthews has fought against. But it gets better because before that, he fought JLS guys. And if you don't know who the legendary JLS is, take the time out of your schedule. If you're watching this on the move, maybe you can't do it now. Get in front of a laptop, maybe take your phone, open up a browser, and type in JLS Tapology. And I promise you, if you don't know who this man is, it'll be worth the moment of your time. As for the fight, Ellis came in on two days' notice. <laughs> two, two days' notice. Ellis gets dropped within 10 seconds of the fight starting. Matthews drops him with a knee, jumps on top of Ellis, starts knocking him around. The fight still somehow goes like a minute or so before Ellis gets tapped out he taps out really fast and victory there for mr matthews but back to ellis 
and his tapology. My man is 16 and 105. Yes, you heard that correctly. 16 wins, 105 losses. But when you go back on his tapology, it gets better. For example, he fought and lost to Anthony Pettis. At the time, he had a 9-23 and 23 record. So Pettis' team was also padding Pettis' record at that time in Pettis' career. He also fought Gerald Mearshot twice. Two times. The first time, he was 3-7. and seven. They were trying to pad Gerald's record, but then Gerald lost the fight. Shit. <laughs> the second time that they fought, years later, Gerald Mearshot versus Ellis Pardue. Now Jay Ellis was 13-53, and 53 and Gerald Mearshot got the win this time. He also fought Colby Covington. Colby Covington's camp dipped into the Jay Ellis well of free wins when you're just looking for free wins. At that time, Jay Ellis was 13 and 56, and Colby Covington team was like, we need this test here. We need to fight Jay Ellis. Let's see what you're made of. Then he also fought Dan Moret, not as big of a name, but also was a UFC level fighter. He's now no longer in UFC. But when he fought Dan Moret, he was 15, he was 13 and 57. My point being, padding records, it happens all across the sport. It's okay. Jay Ellis, we thank you for your service. One more prior opponent. He fought Rob Fuller just two years ago. Rob Fuller, he beat him in round one with a neck crank. Fuller is 2-15 and 15 overall. Yeah. Another full-blown can. He rocked, Fuller, he rocked Fuller, excuse me, almost immediately when the fight starts. The first exchange, he rocks Fuller, and you could tell at that very moment, Fuller had no damn business in that octagon with Matthews or maybe any other MMA fighter. So... Yeah, some, some record padding there on the case of Matthews' team. Can't blame him. He's a young fighter. What's to like about Matthews? Excellent finish rate. So against these cans, he's getting the job done. All five pro wins have been by finish. All four of his amateur wins were by finish. The guy has 100% finish rate. He comes out very good. He comes out of a very good gym. We mentioned before, Joe, Loz Joe Lozon's gym up there in Boston. It does matter. I think it matters more when it's low level. We're well, not low level. When it's like amateur level almost like this this level of fighting where a good coach a good training camp good training partners can make a massive difference to a young fighter so that is notable to me his hands are fast he throws with some heat good combinations he doesn't mind staying in the pocket and trading with his opponent i always like that about a fighter because again when 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 the going gets tough you want a guy who's gonna like you know get in there and trade okay now what are my concerns He's been fighting absolute cans. We've talked about it. And I think he's fought even more cans than our buddy over here, Francis Marshall. They've both fought weak competition. But in the case of Matthews, it might really hurt him that he's fought such low-level guys the last few fights, comes in here, now has a really bump up. Because Francis Marshall, say what you want, he's young, we don't know. But when you watch him on film, has a good accountability for himself, can wrestle, can strike, fairly smart fighter. This will be a big test for both fighters. We'll find out a lot about both guys when this fight is over with. Now, got that out of the way. The, the films we watched to bring down this fight, we watched Matthews versus Ellis, Matthews versus Fuller, Marshall versus Taylor, and Marshall versus Trujillo. All four of those five, oh, sorry, all four of those fights to watch them, they're part of our free video library. You can look down below here on YouTube. You'll see those four links available. In conclusion, I think Marshall wins the fight via round three rear naked choke. We got two guys that have almost the same level of experience, very good cardio. Both have displayed good finishing ability against We'll see, you know, very low-level fighters. Striking is okay, but the bread is better than the ground. Both these guys want to get in the ground. And on the ground, I have a sneaking suspicion that Francis Marshall will be a little better. And this fight probably comes down to that, like, position control moment. 
the takedown of the key moment. A fight where once it's over, you say to yourself, that could have gone either way. If they fought again, the other guy could have won. That does not bode well for Mr. Dana White. The big bad boss has said he wants blood and you know, gory. He wants missing arms and he wants people out there killing each other. That may not be possible because these guys are smaller in weight. They're both very similar. We might end up with a lot of grappling. On the flip side, they both have a lot of chokes, rear naked chokes. They like that position. And I'm hoping for the prediction that Francis Marshall actually does it. So I like Marshall, late round, late round three finish, rear naked choke, where maybe at that point, fatigue maybe plays a part, where both guys have gotten close to some submission, and maybe Francis Marshall gets the benefit of the doubt. Now, if either guy gets back control, that's going to be doomsday for that round, at least. And that'll be the path leading towards a submission. I'm hoping that's Francis Marshall. But look, Connor Matthews, he has every reason to win the fight, too. Both young, both 5-0. I like Marshall here. That's my pick. Good luck with this fight, guys. Moving on up the car, the co-main event or second to last fight. It's kind of awkward to say the co-main event when there's only four or five bouts. So I'm going to just say the second to last bout. We've got Shannon Ross, who goes by the Turkish Delight, hailing out of Australia, versus Vinicius Salvador, who goes by Phenomenal which I'm pretty sure you can translate just about any language means phenomenal. He's out of Brazil. Mr. Phenomenal is 13 and four overall for one of his last five fights. We don't have an age listed here on Tapology, but I looked him up and he's 26 years old. No height listed for him either, but seems to be a longer fighter. So I'm going to guesstimate he's going to be about the same height as Shannon Ross, if not maybe a little bit taller. And Vinicius trains out of Rebus family. As for Shannon Ross, the Turkish delight, 13 and five overall, very similar records. He's also four and one in his last five fights. 33 years old, a little bit older, five foot six in height. He's out of potential unlimited mixed martial arts. As for the votes coming in topology, pretty close here. Salvador with 67%, 33% for Ross. I am actually on the side of Salvador as well, but that's interesting because Salvador is the underdog. Right now, if you go to whatever, DraftKings anywhere, you've got Salvador at plus 200, Shannon Ross at minus 240, but according here to Tapology, Salvador is the favorite. I also, too, like Salvador. I'm not super-duper high on it, but I think it's a dog or pass spot, and I have some arguments for why you might like Salvador as well. Now, looking at the background of these two fighters, let's talk here first about Shannon Ross. He's of Turkish descent. He's of Turkish, excuse me, descent. That's why he goes by the moniker, the Turkish Delight. He's now based out of Australia, obviously. No amateur record. He went pro 2010, so been a pro about 12 years. That's longer than most fighters that are on this show. He's fought in UAE Warriors and Eternal MMA prior to this opportunity with Daniel Contender Series. He fights out of a traditional right-handed stance. Last opponent that I want to mention was Steve Urseg, 2020, two years ago. Lost to this guy, round one, rear naked choke. Urseg is 8-1 overall and looking pretty good. So not a can of a prospect, not just some you know bad fighter. Pretty decent. But he got submitted round one. 2019, three years ago, Paul Loga, round three TKO win. He hurt his opponent pretty badly, followed up, and got a nice finish there in the third round. But he was knocking him around round one and two. Almost got to finish him round one, actually. When he's at his best, I mean, the highlights of him, the videos we saw of him, Shannon Ross looks pretty good. High volume, comes forward. He's an eager beaver. He's trying to finish the fight. He's got good wrestling. He'll pick up his opponent. He'll slam him to the ground. He likes to lead a dance, forward pressure. He's the one doing the engaging. He likes to fight off of his front foot and force his opponent to be backing up. And that includes on the cage. So if he gets his opponent against the cage,
He'll beat him up, dirty boxing, and peel him to the ground. He's a nice one-two combination. That's just a jab followed by the right hand. It is nice. As he works at range, it's there more and more for him. It's not so hard to see coming, but if his opponent's tired, not moving his head, it's there to be landed. He is an effective grappler. And again, we mentioned before, especially against the fence. Now, what are my concerns for him? The same concerns I'm going to have for Vinicius. It's the quality of competition. It'll be a reoccurring theme here when we're doing breakdowns for Dan Wacken series. It's tough to gauge the competition, how good or bad are they? You know, it's just tough because we're talking about regional promotions, guys who have odd records. So from that standpoint, there is a big blind spot there when breaking down this fight. He has to be careful not to overdo it with the wrestling. He has good wrestling, but you know how those guys who just overdo it, they gas themselves out. I'm not sure that he's going to do that. I'm just saying, if he, you know, goes too hard with the wrestling, gasses himself, gasses himself out, excuse me, fight goes on a little bit later, could be a problem. He's got very limited head movement, especially when he starts exchanging with his, with his opponent. So he's not great head movement as it is, but now he starts trading and there's no head movement at all. Yeah, you don't like to see that. Now, as for the Brazilian, Vinicius Salvador, no amateur record either. He fought his first pro fight in 2014, so also been a pro for a while, eight years. Has fought in Jungle Fight, Arena Global, and Pentagon Combat prior to the opportunity he's getting right now. He fought Wallace Vampirino. I think I'm saying that last name right. Vampirino. 2022, earlier this year, got a TKO win in round one. That looks good. But Wallace is 0-1. That's his record. 0-1. So you got a guy here in Salvador who has a pretty good-looking record. You look at him on paper and you're saying, oh, 13-4 overall, 17 total fights. Why are you fighting a guy who is 0-0? Zero and zero? That's the guy who just fought. Now that guy's 0-1. Another prior opponent, Gomez. Terricio, Terricio, tough name to say. That was two years ago, 2020, round two TKO win. Now Gomez is 10-5 and five overall, so better fighter. At least he's got a fight, over 500 record. Then you also beat Luis Filo, 2018 split decision loss. Filo is 11-7 and seven overall and 1-4 and four in his last five fights. I guess what I'm trying to tell you is back to that point. It's it's the quality of competition, really hard to gauge. Now, what's to like about Salvador? He's on a three-fight winning streak. And in those three wins, they've all been TKO finishes for him. He hasn't lost a fight in three years. That's good. Hasn't lost in a while. Has a very high finish rate. He is the better of the two finishers. If you just look at the math, again, quality of competition, quality of competition, reoccurring theme. So he's had nine finishes and 13 total wins. And his last, four, his last four wins have all been finishes. He fights out of a southpaw stance and also a karate southpaw. Imagine like Steven Thompson, hands are low, standing to the side. Um, there's problems with doing that, hands are low. But it is a quirky style. It's hard to adjust to. And he's also a southpaw. So it's kind of a unique thing that he brings to the table. Now, what are my concerns for him? The same as his opponent, quality of competition. We could see one guy come in here and just whoop ass. And we'll be like, oh, wow, we should have seen that coming. Kind of hard to see that coming. That's also why when you see somebody at like minus 240 here on contender series, and they're about the same record, and you know, there's a lot of variables we don't know, you probably want to take a stab at dog. I mean, that's what we're looking at as. Dog or pass, we're giving Salvador a legit chance to win the fight. It seems like the public's also agreeing with us. So at plus, you know, 200, there's some value there. At minus 240, a guy who's still very inexperienced doesn't really make sense 
I don't think in the long haul we're going to make money that way betting on contender series. You know what I mean? Um, he's also got very limited pro experience altogether and no amateur experience. You know, just when you look at that in a, in a little bubble, like who he's fought, low-level guys, not much experience, and he could leave himself open. You know, the counters are there. These These younger fighters, for example, who haven't really been knocked out very much, you know, they haven't been finished very much, still full of piss and vinegar, still very confident. They leave themselves open for counters. He's got that karate style again, hands are low. He's open for counters. The fights we watched, excuse me, the, white, the fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Ross versus Logo, 2020. Ross versus George, 2014. Salvador versus Souza, 2017. And Salvador versus Lazard, 2015. If you want to watch any one of those four fights as part of our free video library, just take a look down below, take a gander down below here on YouTube. You'll see those four links available. A few final thoughts on this fight. Experience-wise, they're just about identical. Ross is 13 and 5. Salvador is 13 and 4. They have both fought in a promotions that, you know, UAE, you'll recognize some names, but not Bellator or even like PFL or LFA or Cage Warriors, nothing even of that level, let alone UFC. So from an experience standpoint, they're about the same. Cardio-wise, also about the same. I do want to note, these guys tend to fight with a lot of energy. That's their MO. You know, if Ross has it his way, he's going to try to back up Salvador for all three rounds and, and quash that karate style. If Salvador has it his way, he'll be active. He doesn't mind you know, working off the back foot, circling, but he'll have more range. The finishing ability edge goes to Salvador. We talked about that. What, nine finishes and 13 total wins? Ross has finishes. They're just a little more sporadic. As for striking, both guys bring good striking to the table. I could argue that Salvador has maybe more fluid, karate, smoother striking. But in the clinch, like against the fence when it's close, Ross would be the better dirty boxer. He'll be more effective there. So they both have positives in the striking game. I would rate them about the same. And grappling, I don't think it'd be much of a factor. This fight should play out on the feet. And I see the fight probably going the full distance. And I like Salvador in this matchup. I think Salvador is going to be tricky enough, will be flashy enough. And ultimately, look, we're looking for a finish. Dana White made it very clear last week. You guys have got to get a finish. Salvador has a slight edge in the finishing, at least from the numbers standpoint. Again, they're against Cans, yes. And then one more factor before I finish up. Salvador is 26 years old. And Ross is 33. It's not the end of the world. Ross is not an old man by any means. But we're at two different points in their careers. Salvador at 26. If he could squeak out a solid win here, maybe even by decision, I think Dana White keeps his number in the Rolodex. Maybe calls him back later in the season. Maybe calls him back next year. For Shannon Ross, it's now or never, right? I think Salvador has the much bigger upside. I like him here. I think he's priced incorrectly. No one should be that much of a favorite or underdog in this show, as we saw from last week. So I'm going to go with Salvador at plus 200 as a dogger pass. That's your breakdown, guys. Good luck with this pick. Good luck with this fight. Never going to make it. You're not good enough. There's a million other people with the same stuff. You really think you're different, and you must be kidding. Think you're going to hit it, but you The main event for week number two, season six of Dana White Contender Series, is going to be a matchup between Charlie Campbell, the American from New York, and Chris Duncan, who hails from Scotland, as in the territory of Paul Craig. He does not have the submission ability of Paul Craig, so don't start thinking that's where I'm going with this. But nonetheless, Chris Duncan, who goes by the problem, is from Scotland. 29 years old, 8-1 overall. 
won his last five fights. And if you were watching Dana White Contender Series last year, he did fight last year, got knocked out by Slava Claus, uh, the guy who lost well, not too long ago against Mark Diakisi. Nonetheless, he fell victim to Slava Claus and showed one of the biggest chinks in his armor. We're going to talk about this, his chin. Is he chinny? We're going to try to answer that question in this breakdown. Nonetheless, Duncan is 5'10", 71.5 inch reach, trades out of MXP Fitness, giving up about 2 inches in height and just about a half inch in reach, which is negligible, right? Charlie Campbell, who goes by the Cannibal, he's out of New York, 5-0 and in his last five fights, 6-1 and overall, 27 years old, two years younger, but age-wise, don't think it's a factor. Experience-wise, also very similar experience, though I would give the slight edge to Chris Duncan because he was on this show last year and so coming back around a second time shouldn't be as nervous should kind of know the whole format schedule whatnot and for charlie campbell he does train out of longo and wyman mma that's notable and we'll talk more about that when we get to his profile looking at the numbers on tapology it appears campbell is the big favorite getting 71 percent of the votes whereas only 29 percent of the votes coming in for duncan that surprised me a bit and that's got to be a little bit of recency bias right so if you saw duncan last year it was not great. He got hurt at the end of round one, couldn't recover, gets into round two, gets finished by Slava Claus. Uh, so it wasn't pretty. <laughs> There's no way to put it. Let's talk, though, about the profile of Charlie Campbell first. He went 5-0 as an amateur. He went pro just three years ago, 2019. He has fought in Bellator, though, and CFFC already, where he's got a combined record of 5-0, so undefeated in Bellator and CFFC combined. He fights at a traditional right-handed stance. His last bout was against Guillermo Dos Santos, that was earlier this year. He won via round one TKO. Santos is 6-3 and three overall, has no wins in any reputable promotion. So it's one of those wins where it is a winning record. Santos does have a winning record, but not the most quality of opponent. It looked good, though. It looked good on the film. If you want to watch that film, the link's down below as part of our free video library. He also fought Nick Guletti just last year, round two TKO win. He just overwhelmed that young man. And Nick Guletti... Again, not a very high-level fighter, but you see what he can do when Charlie Campbell faces a guy who he can hurt, kind of run through. He puts it on. He puts it on. He knows how to finish a fighter. And then one more fight to talk about, Anthony Newton, or Newtown. I live in Newtown. It's actually spelled that same way. Anthony Newtown, or Anthony Newton, 2019 decision loss. Now, look back at Newton's tapology. He's only fought one pro fight. That was that fight. He's 0-1, has not fought since then. That was three years ago. He did have an amateur record. It's like 6 or 7 and 0. But kind of hard to gauge that opponent too. So the first thing I noticed about Charlie Campbell's tapology and his record, my first question, the first red flag for me is quality of competition. Now what's the like about Charlie Campbell? Very active fighter. This will be his second fight this year. He fought 3 times last year. And he even fought one time during the COVID year, 2020. A very solid finish rate of his 6 wins, four of those by finish. And that's 3 by TKO in his last three fights. So three fights in a row by TKO. So the guy's got decent finishing ability. Again, is what's the quality of opponent? Having watched some of it on film, like guys like Dos Santos, Dos Santos had his moments in that fight. He actually had a moment or two against Campbell, and then Campbell just seemed to have a little more in the gas tank. It was able to run through him. Granted, I say gas tank, like round one. Just very low-level competition. So again, very hard to determine how good of a finisher is he. He knows how to scrape his opponents to the ground. He doesn't use judo throws, more like trips, leg trips, 
It's a little sloppy, a little ugly. He's not an amazing grappler. Matter of fact, he does things in a grappling realm that can expose him. But he can bring the fight to the ground. On top, he's decent. He's active. He'll posture up to land some blows. He will have a sizable advantage in, the, in this fight from a height standpoint, about two inches. But reach-wise, not much of a factor. Will the height play a part? Maybe against the fence. Maybe getting those trips, those takedowns, having a little more leverage, possibly. And last thing I do want to mention, again, about Charlie Campbell, the things I like about him. He trains at a very good gym. He's at Longo and Weidman. Good gym. I believe a better gym than where Chris Duncan's training. Now, what's my concern for Charlie Campbell? He leans in heavy. When he wants to land a heavy shot, he'll duck his head down. Watch some of the prior fights. Those links are down below. You'll see what I'm talking about. When he has his opponent hurt, especially, and he's trying to land that killer last shot, it's sloppy. It's um, it's dangerous. If he tries that against a better opponent, he's going to get countered. He's going to be off balance. Uh, so I don't like to see that. I want to see him use better boxing technique. Even when he's got a guy hurt, there's no need to be ducking your head all the way down by the knees to throw an overhand right. His grappling. Now, that's one of the biggest red flags. In this matchup, Chris Duncan, who's not the biggest grappler, which is not a really big deal, shouldn't be a big factor. But the way that he grapples, Charlie Campbell, that is, he's like, he's just kind of, he just goes for shit, put it that way. And it's not very technically sound. He'll give up his back often. And that's just dangerous. Against a good grappler, that will be a recipe for uh, a quick exit. You know, so when it comes to grappling, just not his, his strong suit. Now, what are the things to like about Chris Duncan? We're going to talk about his profile. The young man from Scotland. Again, no relationship to Paul Craig. They haven't trained together, I don't believe. Not the same gym, nothing like that. And he's not a grappler like Paul Craig. Nonetheless, Chris Duncan is 8-1 as an amateur. He went pro 2018. He fought in Bellator prior to the he fought in Bellator prior to the Daniel Contender Series, and he actually is what one and zero in Bellator. Very nice. His last fight in Dana White Contender Series last year, so not his last fight. He actually had a fight after that, but his last fight last year, if that makes any sense, against Borishev, 2021 round two TKO loss. He was a minus 135 favorite in that spot. Chris Duncan, that is. He was a minus 135 favorite. Go back and watch the fight. It's pretty short. At the end of round one, he starts to run out of gas. I'm not sure if it was an emotional roller coaster, just too much, excited for the moment, very young fighter. Runs out of gas. As that's happening, you see uh, Borshev land a few shots, some notable shots, and kind of clips Chris Duncan. We go between rounds, between round one to round two, and Chris Duncan is unable to fully recover. Comes out in round two, eats a few quick shots, and fight is over. He was a favorite in that spot, but not a big favorite. But having talked to some people like on the other side of the pond or across the pond, I'm sorry, the people in that part of the world, he was a very highly, highly touted prospect. People that people liked him a lot. We were betting him pretty heavy in that spot, even though it was still a pick em spot. People were very, you know, confident in him. And having talked to some of those sources, I too was confident in him. And then he just got destroyed. So that's definitely in the front of my mind when I think about Chris Duncan. It definitely factored into this breakdown. And I hope it wasn't too much of a factor, but a factor nonetheless. Leandro Souza, 2019, round one TKO win. Kind of like Charlie Campbell here. When you watch them fight guys that they're much better than, they look amazing. I mean, that's kind of like stating the obvious, right? But they go forward, they engage. Chris Duncan has very powerful leg kicks when he uses them. 
in that fight. He chops down this guy. He looks good. He looks good. So, but again, it's like quality of competition. You're not sure. When he fought against Borshev, hands-wise, he had a speed disadvantage. You notice that. And that's the thing about Chris Duncan. He does have power, but even when he's fresh, he's not the fastest guy. Then he gets a little bit of fatigue going. He gets even more robotic. As he fatigues more and more, everything becomes slow. You can see it. Head movement's not great, even when he does have his full gas tank. So, you know, these are the concerns I have. And that's why Borsha was able to crack him pretty easily in round two and finish the fight. Chris Duncan does have a high finish rate, though. Of his eight wins, seven are by finish, six by TKO, and one by submission. And I mentioned before, again, good lower leg kick. Now, what are my concerns for Duncan? He looked chinny in that last fight in Daniel Contenders. It wasn't his last fight. I keep saying last fight, but you know what I mean. He looked chinny in that fight last year against Borshev. He had a full in-between time period between the rounds. And don't get me wrong. Most people maybe wouldn't recover, but he had an opportunity to recover between rounds and couldn't do it. That wasn't great. He holds his hands naturally low as it is. As he fatigues, they get lower. Head movement's poor. He tends to drop his hands as a wind-up for the kick. It's like not even just as he's kicking. It's almost like a wind-up to the kick. Don't love that. Leaving himself open for counters again. And he slows down. I'm not saying he's got a cardio issue or he's, you know, not in good shape. The guy's in great looking shape. When you see him weigh in face-offs, great shape. But tends to slow down. And he's already not the fastest guy in the octagon usually. So that is a factor. Now, Charlie Campbell, he's got some quickness too. But he tends to slow down too and tends to get sloppy. This fight probably comes down to who's the fighter who keeps it more together. You know, mentally, emotionally, manages their gas tank, is willing to lose round one and then get into round two and start to, you know, sink their teeth into the fight, take their time. We watched four fights to bring on this film. We watched Duncan versus Borshev from last year, Duncan versus Sozer from 2019, Campbell versus Santos from earlier this year, and Campbell versus Giuletti from 2021, which was last year. My last few thoughts on this fight. Experience-wise... You have 8-1 versus 6-1. So mathematically, it's about the same. But I think, again, coming back around the second time for Chris Duncan, there is a bit of an edge there. There's some familiarity with coming back around the second time on the American Tennis Series. So I'm going to give him an ever-so-slight edge there in experience. Cardio, they both have a questionable rating in my eyes. I've seen both of them, I guess, show amateur mistakes, look tired, not look the fresh, as fresh as you should, especially like in round one. Some of those films you'll watch like of Charlie Campbell getting finishes in round one where he's also tired too. It's kind of concerning. If this fight gets into round two and a half, round three, it will come down to the fighter who's got better cardio and who's managing their you know overall game plan better. For finishing ability, the numbers say they're both top-notch finishers. That's what the numbers say. It's against cans though. More than likely though, it could possibly result in a finish in this fight. And this fight is also on Dana White Contender Series where, you know, Dana just went off last week and said, hey man, I want fighters to come in here, go balls to the wall. That probably translates to some action this week. And you would imagine something happens here and someone gets finished. Those props aren't available, but the simple ones to look at would be Duncan by TKO or Campbell by P TKO. And then of course the fight not going to the decision or not going distance. As for striking ability, you know, Campbell's maybe got a small speed advantage, but I think Duncan has a significant power advantage. 
And that'll matter because with Chris Duncan, if he is chinny, then you're also banking on Charlie Campbell if he does connect, not having the most power. And I think it's true. I think Campbell's got some combinations and stuff and got quick hands, but I'm not so sold on the, on the power dynamic. And last category to look at is grappling. Who's the better grappler? Charlie does some grappling. So if you look at Charlie Campbell on film, he does some grappling. Those trips I mentioned before, some judo throws. But he's sloppy in that realm. And Chris Duncan, you know, here, here could be a path to victory for Charlie, right? He wears down Chris Duncan, who's shown some cardio issues before. He gets some top control, makes it ugly, and sort of wears down Duncan. And that becomes a path to victory. But again, I would caution anyone who tries to get a decision winning this uh, week two, they're not in a contract. <laughs> Dana's made it clear. He wants to see some action. And from that standpoint, I would imagine that grappling plays a very small part of this fight. So in summary, I am going to go with Duncan. He's sitting at plus 120. You have Campbell at minus 140. This is priced accordingly. It should be a pick'em. It is a pick'em. I'm edging Duncan because two things. I think he has possibly fought the slightly better quality of competition. That's my opinion. I mean, he's already fought one guy who's in the UFC, right? Borshev. He got knocked out by him, but still, he has that in his resume. And then again, coming back around part two. If the fight gets anywhere around two and a half to the third round, it's going to be strictly who's got the better cardio, who had the better camp, is Duncan Chinny. Um, we won't know. If he gasses out in round two or three and then also gets cracked, the question will still be there. Is he Chinny or does he also have bad cardio? We're not sure. Anyway, guys, I'm taking Duncan in the main event, hoping it's round two or time two for him is uh, two times a charm instead of three times a charm. If he loses here, he might come back again in a year or two. He's very young, right? Only 29 years old. These guys are both young. That's the breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. Alrighty then, that's our full breakdown for Dana White's Contender Series week number two coming up on Tuesday, the 2nd of August. 8 p.m. Eastern start time, of course, being held in Las Vegas at the UFC Apex Arena. A summary of our picks, we're going to go with Shimon Smatritsky to win as a plus 240 dog, Danilo Suzart as a plus 280 dog, Francis Marshall at minus 105, Vinicius Salvador at plus 200, and Chris Duncan at plus 120. At first glance, you're thinking, this dude's nuts. He's just taking underdogs. That was not my plan. I swear to you, breaking down each simple fight, all the little intricacies, it seemed to me as some of these fights were very close. And so when you look at this from a close perspective, I think that these fights are very narrow. The, the margin for victory is narrow. I'm thinking the plus money here is where you're going to get the better return. Can we parlay some of these underdogs? Yeah, we could do that too. I'm not sure our parlays just yet. If you track us on Twitter, track us on betemming.tips, you'll see our parlays for this fight. We'll have them up at some point by early Tuesday. But for now, the spots I like the most, the ones that I have the most confidence in, I like Chris Duncan in the main event. I think he comes in here and you know, basically gets retribution for last year and not winning. I like Francis Marshall a lot. You know, in the breakdown of his fight, a lot of similarities, but the guy's got good grappling. Those are the two spots I like the most. Moving on down from there, I would say I like Salvador at plus 200. I like him quite a bit against Ross. I like Ross too, but I think Salvador has a legit shot. And then Smotritsky and then Suzart. So Suzart would be the one that I have the least amount of confidence in. It's a heavyweight bout. I'm not worried about one-punch power. I'm worried about if Acosta comes out there and does the right game plan, takes him down maybe at some point, that could be a path to victory. So, and for Smotritsky, the Israeli fighter, 
It's also part due for him, too. He did this before. He's coming back around a second time. So I like a lot of dogs here, pretty much all the dogs. And the one fight that I'm taking the even money on is the even money pick. So that's your full breakdown, guys. Again, tune in to our Twitter handle, Instagram. Uh, track us on betting.tips to get our betting information for this fight. Good luck with this full card, guys. Thank you for tuning in. And leave some comments. Let me know what you guys think. Who are you betting on? Did week one make you sick? And so now you're not coming back for week two? If you get some time to watch this on Tuesday night, check it out. Good luck with it. See you guys soon. Deuces.